Escape from Plan A. Escape. Escape. Welcome back to another episode of Escape from Plan A. It's going to be your host, Q, for this week. And uh, back on the episode, it's going to be Mike. How are you doing, Mike? Uh, pretty good. Thanks for having me again. Absolutely. It's been really enjoyable to uh, do this kind of mini book club. Um, and, you know, we're really excited to talk about a couple of really interesting pieces today uh, that we'll also link in the show notes. Um, but first... The first piece is going to be uh, Ho Chi Minh's Letter to Old People, and the second piece will be uh, Huey P. Newton's In Defense of Self-Defense. Both pieces are uh, pretty short, but I think they give a lot of readers quite a bit to think about in terms of uh, how we view the world, especially in kind of the face of the looming Cold War that is going to be impacting all of us uh, in particular, but especially uh, Asian Americans or anyone with a yellow face, essentially. Um, so we can just dive right into it if you'd like. Um, Ho Chi Minh's letter to old people is super duper short. Um, well, honestly, we could probably read the whole thing if we wanted to. Yeah, sure. I mean, okay. Uh, so he this was first published in September 20th, 1945. So he writes, um, Dear elders, I am talking with you as an elder like you. A saying runs that talents are exhausted with the coming of old age, and our elders generally believe it. Whatever happens, they say, old people must live in quietness. We are old. We have no more ambition. It is up to our children to take charge of temporal affairs. We are nearing death. We need not be active any longer. I do not appreciate this outlook. Patriots never live idly by reason of their old age. China had people such as Ma Fu Po. Our country had people such as Li Teng Kiet. The older they grew, the more energetic and heroic they became. At present, our independence and freedom have just been won back, but we still have to go through many difficulties in order to consolidate them. In consequence, our people, old and young alike, must endeavor to shoulder a part of the responsibility. Our children are young. They will do heavy work. We are old. We cannot do heavy work, but leaning on our sticks, we will take the lead to encourage them and impart our experiences to them. We are elders. We must sincerely unite first to set an example to our children. Hence, I hope that the old people in Hanoi will pioneer in organizing the Old People's National Salvation Association for the old folks throughout the country to follow suit and contribute to the safeguarding of our national independence. Um, yeah, so, I mean, it's a, it's a really short and quick, quick letter, but it really spoke to me because um, he was really calling to organize old people to, like, preserve the revolution you know to prolong it to keep it going um to me it directly contrasted with like what we can observe today with like not even old people but like older millennials and like gen xers they seem content to like sit back and act like oh no it's too late for them to do anything when they're the people that are still in charge and they're cool with like letting literal children take over to change the world you know, these people who still haven't like solidified their worldview and everything, but they're letting all these like teens and preteens and like fucking seven year olds mm -hmm. take the reins and not giving them any guidance or whatever. And it, it, it frustrated me. 
Um, so I'm like, hmm, what would our grand old uncle say about that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, in Viet, we have that expression, um, which is just means, you know, you need to remember the lessons that you've been taught. And the this essay is kind of like flipping that kind of um, like lesson on its head, right? Instead, it's like the old people, of course, have lessons to impart to young people, but the old people need to be on board as well. Um, I think it raises up like an interesting ideological question, which is, you know, how like uh, in common discourse about like radical politics, a lot of uh, people will say like everyone's a radical until they get their first paycheck and then they see how much like taxes are taken out or whatever. I think what we're seeing now is that there is no reason why that has to be the case. And it only speaks to the capacity of capitalism to wear people's, you know, revolutionary spirit down. Um because, you know, the, the imagination of what is possible keeps getting narrowed to think that it's inevitable that you will sell out. It's inevitable that you will end up becoming an old person whose only entire goal is to, you know, seek retirement. But this piece speaks to a different kind of consciousness that is possible for when you are old, where you want to be able to provide, like, guidance and leadership to young people. Um, like, an important aspect of kind of the development of uh, leftist politics in a lot of un- other countries, especially in like South America, for example, is that uh, like right-wing dis- uh, authoritarian regimes, one of their first orders of business always was to like destroy the sense of leadership that existed, to, to find all of the elders who identified as like uh, leftist or uh, communist or Marxist-Leninist and to literally kill them a lot of the time so that even when the young people rise up in order to make demands of their country or to try to change the society, the leadership and the guidance and the experience that they would have needed to be able to pull that off has been removed. Like an entire generation of, of expertise has been removed from uh, organizers. So the young people are left without you know, direction. And what that does is it allows for the state to control and to co-opt the movement because there's no uh, clear guidance about what direction or what steps or what mistakes can be avoided. And I think um, this letter does a good job of speaking to why we need uh, old people to be in the movement as well. I mean, old kind of is like a relative term, but I think it would apply to like a lot of millennials, especially older millennials in general. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, you know, like I think in, in this context, right, like Hotiman, he was speaking to like, like the elderly, elderly, you know, because like the man himself is like ancient he was like born like in the late 1800s but <laughs> yeah like you know like older people you know like older millennials and up we need them because like you know they've been through through life much longer than us and so so therefore they, they've learned much more from life you know like you know when we put our faith in old people it should be based on it should be based on the the fact that history is an ongoing process and it's not just a snapshot you know like we have to continue to learn from it to know how it affects what's happening in this moment and how we can use it to shape the future. Okay. We, we need them to tell us firsthand what their experience in like their time was like, and then we can learn a lot about how it shaped their worldview and also how their worldview also in terms shape how they retell history to us. I think that's really important too, because right. the way we're, we're taught about history, right? It's, it's only from the perspective of the people who survived from it. Um, we can use like the Vietnamese exile community as an example. Like, of course, if we ask a person who left Vietnam in like right. the 90s, right, what they think of socialism, they'll tell us that all it does is make um, our country poor. 
But when we learn our history from like the end of the war for liberation against America up until the Noimai economic reforms, right? We can see clearly that Vietnam's pursuit of communism was like hampered by the embargoes and sanctions that these capitalist imperialist countries, namely the United States, imposed on us. And they couldn't because they couldn't stand that bombs and bullets were not enough to subjugate us. Adding on to the fact that the damned Sino-Soviet split prevented socialist nations from developing better relations with each other. And the Soviet Union was basically our homeland's right. only friend. And with the collapse of the Soviet Union, Vietnam was basically up shit creek without a paddle. So when we listen to the experiences of these elders and we combine it with the actual overarching history that we've learned, we can develop a more complete picture of the suffering capitalist ec- imperialist economic warfare brings to people in the global south. Like um, when I watched the documentary Loyal Citizens of Pyongyang and Seoul, I realized that there is a lot of great perspectives that we still haven't picked up because the old people just haven't spoken up yet or they haven't been given a platform to speak up. Um, like these defectors from the DPRK that are of an older generation that were being held against their will in um, the in US occupied Korea, like against their will by the NIS. They're they're old they're from like a, the generation before defectors like Pak Yun Mi. You know, and they talked about how like these stories of being so starving that you had to eat tree bark were true, but they brought up that these youngsters lacked the context of why they were starving. Like, of course, they blame it on the government, but these older people they made a great point of bringing up uh, the economic blockade against the DPRK and how during the Korean War the damn Yankees intentionally bombed agricultural sites. So we need every kind of perspective, especially from the old people, so we can flesh out a true to material reality worldview. You know, like we can acknowledge that these people's sufferings are real, but then dig up the real reason why they were suffering and then use that to, you know, hold these rotten systems accountable for what they've done to people. You know, like sometimes we talk about like in theories and ideologies a lot, but we have to always remember it's affecting real people. Yeah, I think it's incumbent upon us, especially as a Viet-American to think about the responsibility that we have uh, in the kind of unique position that we're in to be able to articulate like the practical case against uh, anti-communism and especially the case against uh, fascism as we see it being like mm-hmm. rising now. Um, I think the point that you make about uh, U.S. occupied Korea, you mean like South Korea, I think, mm-hmm. just to clarify for anyone who doesn't know. Um, but the point that's being made there is something that's being uh, echoed by Michael Parenti in uh, the book Inventing Reality, which we discussed, is that um, the state and then in particular white supremacy has this uncanny capacity to be able to pick and choose people who look like you to speak on your behalf in a way to convince everyone else in your community to go against your interests. So in the context of, uh, you know, you know, folks who would represent the interests of DPRK but are being held uh, within the uh, confines of U.S. occupied Korea or South Korea, as most people know it. Um, you know, those types of individuals who are talking about the importance of uh, the embargoes and preventing the country from being able to develop or to be able to be self-determining um, would not be boosted up to, you know, the sky in terms of visibility, right? Like they selectively pick and choose, quote unquote, defectors who are willing to espouse the narrative that they want to make present for the entire public. So the especially I think in the context of Vietnamese Americans, I think it's very easy to see why um, the propaganda has been so strong because the strain of diaspora that are in the United States have a thorough political allegiance 
to uh, American empire and what that represents, which are, you know, these uh, kind of blank, very facile, very like superficial notions of democracy, human rights, of um, freedom. (laughs) 